Welcome to the 1CA podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to talk about working the last three feet of foreign relations. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working on ground with partner nations and their people. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassos.org. I'll have both of those in the show notes. China has a long-standing tradition where their ruling class is always held accountable. And it's one of the few reasons that justifies the population to revolt and depose the ruling class. This is the second in a two-part series on agriculture and national security. Captain Gustavo Ferreira talks about China's food stocks in peacetime and forecasts supplies in conflict. Ferreira is an agricultural economist for the 353 Civil Affairs Command, FXSP, and also for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He and his 38 Gulf agriculture team research and consult globally on food stocks and stability. Additionally, Ferrara discusses the 38 Gulf program and how it brings in specialists to help civil affairs consult agency leaders and partner nations. So stay tuned. So the, the ruling class is always very sensitive. There is a cultural tradition that the ruling class must always ensure at the very minimum food security. Right. And even today, that reflects a lot in the policy and narrative of the current ruling class in China. It's, if they have history yeah. with accepting that the population will rise up, it's not like North Korea, where you can starve your population and build a nuclear program and right. accept that they will behave properly. Correct. Yeah, they're extremely sensitive to that. Plus, it's still pretty fresh in, in some segments of the population, population memory, the Great Famine. It's claimed to kill tens of millions of people in the 50s. Well, they still have living memory. Right, right. So yeah, they have yeah. grandparents and great-grandparents Correct. are like, you don't know what it was like to Correct. starve on water. Yeah, and, and they have those eating habits that still reflect those struggle times. So anyway, that is just a recent event that guarantees you so those events do not happen again. It was all based on bad policies. Sure. Plain and simple. It was all ill-advised government acts and with dire consequence. Today, the population has adopted more Western lifestyles to include more protein-rich, dairy-rich diets. They consume luxury goods, such as imported European wines. So more than ever now, the population has achieved a threshold of food security that it will be hard to imagine then going back to a... To a rice today. Yeah, a wheat uh, type of diet. So going forward, I think that this... Sensitivity is only getting more prominent than, than before because, like I said, they're, they're comfortable. They, they enjoy a much better, more balanced diet. So do you think that as they consider operations or decided to blockade Taiwan or if they decided to go into Myanmar, this is a real consideration for them is how much they can ensure they feed their military as they are expeditionary? Not only the military, it's just in general, the, the overall population, right? Well, and that's what happens, right? If you go expeditionary, you've right. got to feed that army and that right. Air Force military. And that comes out of your surplus that would go into the population. Correct. China has some significant national stock reserves of key agricultural commodities. Just corn, soybeans, wheat. 
and rice. Right. So how much is on those? How many millions of metric tons are in those stock uh, stock level? It's a state secret. Nobody knows. And all U.S. and allies, for commercial purpose, they always try to uh, assess and, and try to estimate what were the volumes of those stocks. Because that determines trade, exports, imports. Sure. They can always release those stocks when needed, right? Right. But there's even speculation that some of those stocks are in, in tunnels underground, under the mountains, and they again, a lot of secrecy. Right. But to maintain those stocks, especially in commodities such as corn and soybeans, they're not self-sufficient. China must import very, very large volumes of those products. Right. And those imports come strictly from a handful of countries, to include the United States, Brazil, Argentina, and Ukraine and Russia now. Right. You were talking about soybean as being a critical crop that they rely on for food stock for their animals. Their Correct. Lives. So as... As food production became more industrialized and diet habits evolved in China, now China is the world's largest pork uh, consumer. So China adopted this industrialized massive pork production. They're vertical farms, some of them 10 stories high. They contain thousands and tens of thousands of, of animals. Like you said, that requires a lot of feed. And soybeans is always considered to be one of the best alternatives. Does it create problems with the animals if they're constantly eating the same diet? Not necessarily. There's balanced diets. I mean, there are rations that are, you know, they're being used. Even the United States are used uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, constantly. But the problem is that it puts a lot of pressure on domestic agriculture, which is incapable of supporting that growth. And therefore, they do have to import food. It is an interesting image in my head of a 10-story pig farm. Right. A pig high-rise, basically, for, right. or a condo for pigs. So they don't get out of their trough. They don't. And in fact, they dealt with a major African swine fever that decimated their pig farms. And right. It, and it forced them to cull tens of thousands of animals. It was, a, it was a massive outbreak. Again, it causes a food security concerns in where all of a sudden the price of pork meat just, just skyrocketed. They handle, they, they're getting better in terms of phytosanitary measures. They're getting much more sophisticated and realize the risks. Right. But let, but it keeps bringing back the same thing with their dairy. They're increasing dairy production. But again, it goes back to the same problem. China is cons constrained in terms of farmland and water resources. So even though there is political backing for a more food self-reliance, they still do not have... The natural endowments. Support. You mean like healthy soil, water? Correct, correct. They minerals. just don't. It's just between contamination, urbanization, lack of even uh, farm labor. I mean, it's right. been this for decades, there's been a massive migration toward the coastal parts of the country. Farming families moving to the city looking for better economic opportunities. Right. right. In your paper, you had some projections about if China went on a wartime footing and they were de disconnected from the global economy, I think it was, what, two years before they go into a crisis-conserving type of mode, right? Right. That's that's a common wisdom that it states that those reserves will probably sustain China for two years. However, obviously, things have shifted and Russia probably could now become 
a backdoor type of supplier where he could probably redirect some of those needed grains through mainland right. rather because all the trade all this massive trade that happens between china and and in the u.s and argentina and brazil happens mostly by sea right you know, right like thousands of panamax vehicles loaded with bulk commodities that unload into chinese ports every day well if that trade gets disrupted for whatever reason you got those national strategic reserves right buy some time to chinese but it's unknown how long two years is it's a mark that people have in the industry right but then you have potentially russia try to supply some of those things right. staples that you can store right. and there's no alternative russia could supply some wheat but china's stuck right it's by trade by necessity it's stuck with south america and united states right let's say you know there's a growing tension between china and the u.s only but china maintains good trade relationships with brazil and argentina right because of the the geographic location of those farms there's a, a cycle right a farming cycle in another another hemisphere and the southern hemispheres so what happened u.s and brazil Argentina, they split the year in two basically there's a exporting soybean season and corn season for the u.s which starts in september mm-hmm. and goes all the way to february roughly and all of a sudden brazil and argentina take over because that's their time for harvest until the late summer they take over the export market so china would not have the ability to just flip because it, right. it, there's this seasonality component that keeps that dependency going across different atmospheres the, the global commerce interconnectivity creates the dependency and it's just a lack of i mean there's no other countries that can produce that much right not only quantity but the quality because there's, there's always a quality like Argentina typically produces a lower quality uh, soybean with less protein, but but they they're good at producing meal. So it, it, there's all these technical considerations that makes very difficult for China to try to outsource alternative. Right. There's no, there's no such alternative. I don't mean to change the topic, but you garnered this from your work at both U.S. Ag and from Civil Affairs. If a soldier or a diplomat or an aid worker or field operative working with a partner nation. How do they plug in ag to build estimates of stability or development and growth? Because ag people do go out to these partner nations and do estimates, right. work with the partner nation on their on their systems. So the USDA, and this is going back to a major event that happened during the height of the Cold War. The Soviet Union at the time had a major series of crop failures. Before this, there was no monitoring, uh, no tracking, proper tracking of how much grains and, uh, and agricultural products were being produced and trade and consumed around the world. There was not a, a proper assessment and monitoring of those flows, right? So right. there was no understanding of like, which country were missing, or which country were, had a deficit, which one had a surplus, and where those surplus were moving around. So what happens because there was nobody assessing this and with, with severe yeah. implications of you know, possible famine. So what happens is they end up through the backdoor channels buying all the wheat they could get their hands on from the U.S. And before they realized that the U.S. actually was running low on their own stocks of wheat, now they, they end up selling it 
to our Cold War main opponent. So that was a source of consternation and a little sense of humiliation that we end up selling such a key uh, right. resource to our enemy. So, so from that point on, the USC created this this group called the WASI, and it's a report is World Agriculture and Supply Demand Estimation, and it's a report that's published every month, which I'm part of it in my USDA capacity as an agriculture economist. It's a large body of professionals all over the world, you know, the U.S. USDA employees. Some there are in, embedded in embassies, attaches, and some right. are experts here in CONUS. Every month they monitor production, supply, demand, stock levels for right. every country, for every major commodity. Which is and, a good predictor of stability. It is, it is. They, and you can identify what countries are struggling, where do you expect trade to move from, what place to what place. So now we are in a much better position to identify what the true situation is in the global egg market. Right. Which also helps with forecasting future risk. Correct. Exactly. Right. Like with Ukraine, you know, the Ukraine war, there's obviously there had to be major adjustments to those estimations because, you know, all of a sudden there was a major disruption in the key egg region of the world. So all those estimates had to be readjusted and figure out how... The other countries will react to it, you know, how sure. things get redirected from one market to the next. Wow. Okay. But again, in the case of China, right, there's a lot of energy and effort that goes into figuring out how much China will import from the United States and other countries because it is the leading customer of those key commodities. So it truly is all eyes on China. Right. Which, again, from a commerce perspective and even from a national security perspective, it's good that we're tracking that. It's good that we have a finger on the pulse to understand what kind of policies that they implemented. Where they're strong, where they're weak, where, where there's needs. If there's a strong demand from China, I mean, it, it comes down to basic economics. Right. That will mean large volumes exported to China, higher commodity prices for U.S. farmers, which in, increase the overall financial health of our farming community. And, and we have seen this in the last two in three years, you know, with between COVID and um, and the war in Ukraine, global food prices have reached historical highs, record right. highs. And right. while this has been extremely problematic for net importing countries, I saw a lot of news of concern in the Middle East right. and North Africa, as, like Egypt, because they use so much of that wheat. Correct. So there was really uh, an immediate concern about it, but for. The net exporting countries like the Brazil, the Argentina, the U.S., the Paraguay, that was was good news. I mean, mm-hmm. in fact, I mean, we, we like you know the profit margins, the farmers were you know really healthy in the, in twenty twenty two. So right. So it depends on what side of the the store you're looking at. For places like China, they end up paying a higher price for for those imports. Your USDA and your you're an agricultural economist. So you're part of a team of 38 golf agriculturalists who often go out and consult globally on these very issues. Our job is to provide insider expertise on any agricultural issues that may impact, you know, either national security or even in terms of nation rebuilding or reconstruction. Get a stable food production, right? Correct. Restore the food supply chains back to some sense of normality, try to improve the markets, 
reinstate the previous markets that were in place. So that's typically our role is that is just provide the expertise to the commanding officers. They look, it's a, once kinetic operations start to cease and we start shifting towards reconstruction and stability and governance, how can we restore all those key governance functions? So we are the subject matter expert when it comes to agriculture and food and food security. Right, so when Ukraine finally completes this conflict and they need reconstruction, they need to pull in folks like you, both in the suit aspect as well as in the uniform, right. to make forecast, to do assessments on ground of what's already destroyed, what can be repaired, and then funnel those reconstruction dollars towards rebuilding Ukraine to be a vibrant food-producing country again. Correct. That's the way the timeline that follows. You know, obviously, that mission is is to be shared with multiple government government agencies, State Department, USID, which you know, the well-trained, well-equipped for that mission. But the thirty-eight Gulf and the the civil affairs and the U.S. Army Reserve, they typically tend to be the leading party in this when. The stability situation is not good enough for those civilian agencies to be doing their work. Plus, so, you're supplemental. I mean, they have great people. Right, right, right. But it's nice to have a few extras that come right. in and right, help right. with the paperwork on all the site visits and everything else. And, and, you know, and just we can assist them with the expertise and some of the connections we already have established with the sure. local leaders and national government agencies. So we can start those conversations. And once all this apparatus move in, with, we can help to facilitate that transition and help make those connections so those agencies are set up for success. So. Right. Matter of fact, you had a paper that went to the Moldova embassy and was read widely about Moldova agriculture. You've gotten papers in South America, Africa, Asia. Right. Same thing, where you've done research projects and putting together white papers to to kind of just expose some of the conditions and either add weight to needs or reinforce good supply lines and things like that, right? Yeah, and we try to foresee potential either opportunities or things that might be problematic. We try to identify some factors or events that could lead to intersect between food security, agriculture, and national security. Right. And in the case of this Moldova research that we did, we try to draw lessons for what we observe in Ukraine. You know, right. a key major agriculture exporter who saw its production and trade severely disrupted by the conflict, right? There's still a lot of agriculture going on, no doubt. Still exporting thanks to the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which is up for renewal this month. Mm-hmm. And it's still under negotiation, so uh, to be seen. If this is to happen, a similar situation is to happen to another nearby countries such as Moldova, are we going to see some similar patterns and events or is it going to be a very different picture? For instance, the, the agriculture in Moldova, it's, it's quite different, right? It's, it's much more focused on fruits, more high-value products yeah. compared to the just bulk grains like Ukraine. Like. Yeah. I don't want to over-focus on Moldova. Right, just, right. These are the kind of products that you have sent out and have reached embassies. Right. And you've gone to embassies and consulted on these things, right? Once we finish our research, we do disseminate this to, to what we think will be the key stakeholders and, and yeah. primary consumers of this information, which embassies will be, obviously, because they're the equipment. They have ag attaches, they got military attaches. Right. And, and obviously, the State Department's mission often you know, overlaps with 
some of our work. Yeah. We, we shared our work with the European Command, user mm -hmm. rap. We always try to identify who will benefit the most from learning this right. information. And probably civil affairs teams that are out in the field. As well. And say, well. hey, by the way, you know, consider this when you're also dealing with these Thanks people. for bringing that up. So we had developed what we call, it's a basic country agriculture assessment tool, which trains a civil affairs team. They may go on a mission, and it can be both in continental Europe or can be a rural parts of Africa. It doesn't matter. Sure. But that assessment goes over a battery of questions that we think that any CA officer should be very aware of uh, nuances and those factors that could really shape the environment in that region. And I'll give you an example, right? So if you think about farming in any Western country, you know, you have a well-developed banking system yeah. that upfront provides the money to the farmers to buy the seeds, the fertilizers, and then once they harvest, they repay back. In parts of rural developing nations, you might have a village in where one family is the one that provides, who supplies that function, right? Is the one that all the farmers go to get their money. So as a civil affairs officer in that area, you should know that that's a key stakeholder that holds a lot of power, a lot of gravitas in that region yeah. because all farmers have to rely on his funding every year. But again, we lay out all these key questions that we think uh, we're going to shed light on issues that probably otherwise will be overlooked. So right. we want you to make sure that you know the key players and you want to make sure you don't make mistakes or actions that might be counterproductive from the agriculture point of view. Do you have links to that paper online? We produce that internally. Okay. What we do is once we identify CA teams that are about to deploy, we link up with their team leader and we go over the product and we discuss and give you the examples. All right. Once that introduction is done, we act as a reach back capabilities. So we had some of those uh, civil affairs team reaching back to us. Look, I have some question about this. Now I know you guys are the ad guys, but we stumbled across this particular issue. What's your thoughts on this? Okay, so when people reach out to this show, I'm gonna be emailing you. <laughs> well, because that's the key thing is to know that the civil affairs study you go provides that reach back capability. Just like, yeah. you know, I mean, we have, obviously, we're just the ad guys, but there's the functional specialists with a great deal of expertise. And the other thing that makes our service very specific, very unique in the Army, is our civilian professional network. Oftentimes, I don't have the direct answers, right, to some of those specific questions. But I do know within the USDA or an academic, who are the experts? And I've done that multiple times where I just just grab a, a phone or send an email. In case in point, for, for Ukraine, UCOM had really specific questions about Ukraine. I developed this partnership with a colleague at USCA Foreign Agriculture Service who are, happen to be the experts on Ukraine. And you were able to cut through the bureaucracy and yeah. go right to the right person so they can yeah. get the answer. Well, I got two options. I can try to get these answers. Mm -hmm. It might take me two days. Or I can just ask this person. And within... Within four hours, <laughs> this information was back to Stuttgart. Did, did you just like pull out a hat and reach into it and say, here's your answer? <laughs> yeah, but it, it was a beautiful process in the sense yeah. that we connected the need with the source of knowledge really efficiently. It made it to the, the right person at the right time. And those USDA officials, they routinely send me updates. If they see there's something that may merit sharing with the con, a user wrap, they do it. And I always, you know, uh, 
I filter, I go through it and make that decision. Right. And if it is, I'll send it. Because oftentimes they have access to sources on the ground that even the U.S. military doesn't have. They actually understand the problem. I mean, but yeah, like it's, it's, it's been a very fruitful relationship. That's fantastic. And that, that really calls to them. Have a good network. Yeah. And a good reach back because you never know what crazy question you're going to get on the ground. Absolutely. And suddenly have to find the right person. And yeah, it's fantastic. You're able to reach out to the exact right person. Yeah, absolutely. And academics too. I mean, we have some partnership with some strong ag programs and they understand the military. There might be some initial concerns of what was the nature of this question, but we have developed key partnerships in where they understand the mission. We had to kind of do a little bit of education, right? We had to introduce ourselves up. to get through the mansplaining. Right. <laughs> well, it's just like saying we're not your typical military, you know. Like say, you know, I was an academic myself, you know, and and I'm, you know, I'm an ag economist by training. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's that kind of breaks a lot of that initial reluctancy. So, okay, so now you now you speak in my language. And I think that that's a strength, you know, because, and the same thing goes for the uh, some of my colleagues. They have years of uh, industry experience, right? So they can reach right into the commercial sector yeah, right. and, and pull the doers and the makers that they don't understand, you know, the minutia of what it takes to rebuild a dam, right? And right, you might have this, you know, work experience in an engineering structural engineering company, right? So you understand those those key issues. That your typical civil affairs officers may, you know, may not be familiar with. Right. And I've, I've found often with commercial contacts is that when you can't get access to a country or an issue and the academic and the, and the former military or governmental process doesn't work, that commercial sector person usually has access and right. they at least get you an introduction, get you in to talk to someone. Right. So it's, it's yeah, it's critical to have that triad of people or resource networks in order to get things done. Right, I agree. Well, do you have any other last thought? Anything you want to pitch? Vacation at Disneyland? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. It's, but honestly, I think one thing that this recent conflict in Ukraine has highlighted, it's the issue of global food security front and center. Okay, again, DOD is not paying close attention to these issues. Because, I mean, if you start thinking about pandemics, global warming, uh, military kinetic conflict, all those are now throwing shockwaves into the global supply chain. But I'm also would like to caution because this happened before in the 2010 2012 crisis for different reasons, but we experienced a similar spiking in global food prices, which in turn trigger the Arab Spring and another uh, sources of, of political instability just because of the, the high food prices. Back then, the military was really interested, but once the supply demand took care of that, you know, years later, that it all issue, goes away. There's right, other problems. Right, right. There's other, other priorities. So, so uh, right. hoping that what's seen now will become part of the recurrent priority, not just a temporary crisis. Right, but it could also be a really good part of the response to the Global Fragility Act that Congress recently right, correct, right. that passed. You're right. We've seen the right policy. I mean, the, the narrative is there. There's a an acknowledgement that this issue is a really problem, right? And, yeah. and the supply chains, you know, all this vulnerabilities that were exposed during the COVID. And that's, that's all happening. It's just, for the national security perspective, I think it's imperative that the DOD continues to put resources and eyes on this and incorporate this food security consideration into their planning operations, right? It's going to be a key driver to a lot of the events 
they're going to shape out the environment, the AOs, right? So it's, it, it's, it's good for, the, for us as agriculture office to keep the heads up yes. to the planners. Look, at this, look this, you might not be looking at this, but this is going to be a major driver of political instability in this region. Right. And, and you need to take that into account. They add weather in there now. They might, you know, as food well. security and stability would be a, a plus as well. I agree. All right, well, I think that's it. Okay. Unless you have anything else. Not that, but that will do it. Okay, well, appreciate your time, man. Thanks again for listening to the 1CA podcast. Our show is a production of the Civil Affairs Association. If you are interested in coming on the show or guest hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have that email and the Civil Affairs Association website in the show notes. And to all our folks in diplomacy, development, defense, and operations, working on ground to build those relationships with partner nations and their people, thank you for all you do. This is your host, Jack Gaines. Until next time, have a great week.